Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 543, The Final Confrontation. Is God concerned about our tithing? Does our silence leave us in danger of becoming whitewashed tombs? And what the heck is a phylactery? Let's find out as we study Matthew chapter 23. Hello, everyone. It's good to be together again on this deep dive into Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel. Today, we're looking at chapter 23, which is really the final confrontation that Jesus had with the religious leaders. From, from chapter 20 through today, we've seen rising conflict with these leaders. Uh, Jesus becomes more and more directly confrontational. Um, now in this chapter, it, it reaches its peak. Uh, for the final time, when he's finished to the religious leaders, he will depart from the temple. And, and Matthew's very deliberate about this. It, it symbolizes a final parting of the ways. So let's look first at him addressing uh, false versus true leadership, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. You'll remember that early in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus assured everyone that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now in this chapter, we'll we'll see Jesus confronting all that is false in the way that the Pharisees interpret and present that law. But Jesus never negates it. He begins by expressing both the authority and the great responsibility of sitting on the seat of Moses. He says, do what they say, not what they do. You know, in the previous chapter, repeatedly, he charged them with being hypocrites. Now he's specific about this charge. They do not do the very things they tell people to do. There's both blindness and arrogance in this. They're above the law. They're above being critiqued by others, especially the common people. You know... When leaders place distance between themselves and the people, whether it's politics, whether it's church leadership, inevitably it leads to hypocrisy. This takes me back to chapter 20. This is why leaders must serve. It's for their own spiritual well-being. Also, it through serving, they begin to live more of a transparent life, and it 
and it protects them. Transparency protects leaders, ultimately. And this is counterintuitive. And it, it's, it can be very threatening as a leader to be transparent. But this is what Jesus is addressing. Now, one of the ways they tie up heavy burdens is through guilt and shame. I'm sorry to say I've heard this too many times, that the message to people, subtly or not so subtly, you're not doing enough for God. Um, You know, I'm really disappointed there weren't many people at the prayer meeting this week. Or show your devotion by doing the things that I tell you to do. Attend the meetings, etc. These are all ways of using, using guilt. This is why the responsibility to lead is huge. How we model, how we lead directly affects people's understanding of their relationship to God. So when Jesus says they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them, true leaders lead the way. They don't point the way. They don't say, you guys should serve more. They lead the way in serving. Let's move on. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at uh, banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, to be greeted with respect in the marketplace, and to have people call them rabbi. By the way, phylacteries were were a, a box with prayer scrolls in them, and they were typically strapped on the arm, sometimes even the forehead, and and that that sent a message: I'm very spiritual. So they like to make them big. Now, in this passage we just read, Jesus gives six illustrations of the outward show of what is really inward pride and vanity. You know, outward show is so much a part of every culture. The followers of the Jesus way have to be very intentional about recognizing and rejecting society's standard and show of importance. This, folks, is one of the great temptations of leadership. In all my years of pastoring, and I think of the times that I was asked at, at you know city events to please come sit on the platform in the place of honor, and I found this really tricky because because I don't want to make a show of not making a show, but but it, uh, given what Jesus is saying, I'm very uncomfortable with that. He says in in Luke fourteen. Uh, eight, he says, do not take the place of honor. So I see what he's saying here as, as an ongoing heart check. Am I wanting deep down to be recognized? Do I like the attention in my role as a leader? Do I like to make sure people know my title, my degrees, etc.? These seven woes that we're going to look at today, this whole chapter, it is a real roadmap for heart check. Verse 8 to 10, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. All the disciples are of the same rank. 
we go back to what he said in in chapter 20 uh, about the greatest being the least and being the servant of all. It's interesting. You can look all the way through Matthew's gospel, and the only ones who ever address Jesus as teacher or rabbi are outsiders, with only one significant exception. Judas uses the term after he turns away from Jesus. And he says, and call no one your father on earth. This can be a bit tricky. It gets back to the inner person. What are the motivations in my heart? I have lots of spiritual kids uh, uh, in North America and around the world. Uh, a few of them call me dad. Uh, more of them call me Papa Steve. And, and I was surprised when this began to happen. Because whenever I'm asked, what should I call you? I always say Steve. So at first, because of this verse 9, I wouldn't accept dad. Please don't call me that. But I quickly saw that it was hurtful to people. This was because it was a term of affection and endearment coming from them. It wasn't a title. You know, I've, I've for so many years had a natural avoidance of titles. Uh, I, I really uh, avoid, my wife and I joke about the A word, apostle. Oh, you're an apostle. No, I'm Steve. And it's been strong for a long time. But, but now with this stage of my life where I'm finding people calling me dad and papa, um, I, I'm trying to learn to become more comfortable with that. I think one of the things Jesus was after in this passage is the avoidance of spiritual hierarchy. Let's move on. Verse 11 and 12, the greatest among you will be your servant and all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The early church really took this uh, saying of Jesus very, very seriously. They embraced it. Uh, James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. Now, humbling yourself, as we saw in chapter 20, Jesus calls us beyond a humble attitude to humble actions. Becoming humble through actively humbling myself, which is literally taking the lowest place. This is choosing to become a servant. If I want to choose to become a servant, what have I got to do? I've got to serve others and another and another because we're following the servant king. Now we come to the second section of this chapter, the seven woes. This is the strongest language that Jesus will use anywhere in Matthew's gospel against the religious leaders. In fact, perhaps the strongest in all four gospels. It is passionate and it is determined. But I want us to understand something. This is not an excuse for us. Well, that's how Jesus talks, so I can talk to my critics like that. This is a final warning to them. You know, when you're, you see someone's house is on fire, you don't say, oh, your house is on fire. You shout, fire. That's what's going on here. So let's move fairly quickly through these 
seven woes. The first woe is really about closing doors. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. This word seven times, woe, it's got a lot in it. It, 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 it unites wrath with pain and anger with deep sorrow. Jesus is criticizing the hypocrisy of, of false and overly complicated interpretations of the Bible that the religious leaders use. We know the expression, knowledge is power. And I'll tell you with leaders, it's always tempting to, to hold back knowledge for, for me to know something you don't know. And that's what he's criticizing here. Now, the Jewish leaders were going to continue to increase their attack on Christ and the church throughout the rest of the first century. Um, they, they locked people out of the kingdom, as Jesus just said, in various ways. They deflected Jews from the faith in Christ. Actively, we read church history, the first century, the Jewish leaders were doing everything they could to deflect the Jews from Christ. They Secondly, they taught the law apart from the messianic key. Christ is the key to understanding the scriptures. And they locked them out by binding people to human traditions rather than God's word. And this is something we have to watch for so carefully in our day, in every day. Second woe is misguided zeal. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Boy, that's a strong phrase, isn't it? Church father Christostom said this, Vice is always harmful, but particularly when someone thinks only others need correction, not himself. For this reason... Christ called them blind guides. I think he's also going after the whole issue of misguided zeal. There's a lot of missionary zeal that that is not the same as, as divine truth, as wisdom. Years ago, I, I took a team into Kyrgyzstan, which was part of the former Soviet Union. We were in the capital of Bishkek. And the week before we got there, a zealous missionary group from a, a, an American denomination was in disobeying the law. The law said you may not uh, proselytize out on the streets, and they disobeyed it, and they were thrown out of the country which is harmful enough. But secondly, it meant everyone who followed, like us, we had to strictly stay indoors. We had to, we had to have secret meetings and all kinds of things. This is an example of, of missionary zeal that's from the flesh that I think in part is from rebellion. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Instead of, of real, true wisdom from above. So this woe is a warning to all disciples that we need to pray for discernment. We need to pray for our own purification, as as Christostom said. Folks, do not confuse 
the activity, the, the, the zeal of activity, or size with authenticity or truth. Being a megachurch does not equal truth. Now, it doesn't mean, I'm not saying there can't be truth at a megachurch, but it, there's a total non sequitur there. Megachurch does not equal truth. Third woe, false teaching. And this is a longer one. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by the one who is seated upon it. Now, you'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus very clearly told the disciples not to make oaths at all. But what's he doing here? Well, he's, he's coming into the Pharisees' own backyard. Uh, for them, oaths were completely unquestioned. So he, he operates in that paradigm. And what he's addressing here is simply following religious traditions that can lead to foolishness and extreme. In exposing this through these obvious examples, he's making an important point. Avoid complicated, unclear teaching of Scripture. Avoid teaching that's based on, on just complicated traditions. The fourth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. This woe is vitally important. It is central in Scripture. Now, the only time that the New Testament speaks of tithing, apart from um, Hebrews chapter 7, where the writer is pointing out that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, that's the point. This is the only time the New Testament speaks of tithing. You won't find it anywhere else. There's no mention of tithing in Acts or the Epistles, but lots about giving and being generous. Tithing is something that is taught as a means to an end. So often, we, we hear the Malachi 3 scripture again and again, test me in this. And the tithing is is taught really just to lead people to prosperity and blessing and spiritual power. You want more prosperity? You want more blessing in your life? You want more spiritual authority? Then tithe. Can you see that that is absolutely sowing to the flesh and not the spirit? Jesus says that tithing is good, just like he says fasting is good. 
But tithing, folks, is a minor topic in Scripture. It's never presented as a major concern of God's. So why do we make it such a major concern for many of us every every Sunday morning? There's the, the tithing mini-message or, or whatever it may be. It is minor, not major. And it was, they were majoring on a minor in Jesus' day, and he called them up on it. Now, he says, you've ignored the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faith. These are the things you should focus on and teach and encourage when Jesus said that, he's paraphrasing a famous verse, Micah 6, 8. Uh, he has shown you, O man, what the Lord desires of you. Do justice, uh, love mercy, walk humbly. Neither Micah nor Jesus allow for theoretical love of the idea of justice. Do justice. He says this is the weightier matter. He's talking, by the way, not about justice for me. He's talking about social justice. You know, the primary purpose of Old Testament justice was to protect the weak and the vulnerable. Perhaps there, there's another criticism in his words. The Pharisees favored the rich uh, and the powerful. We saw this in chapter 22. So, it's impossible, perhaps, he's saying, to be faithful to his call to social justice and then to cater to the injustices of the rich. I've been thinking about that the last couple of days. That is challenging. We must not give preferential treatment, more attention to, more deference to to the rich, the ones who can give more, the ones who in the world's eyes have, have got higher standing. The gospel is on the side of the poor and the weak. So must the church and its leaders be. Another church father, Irenaeus, said, Any church that does not care for the poor is guilty of heresy. Wow. Well, let's talk about mercy. Because that's the second weighty thing. And and this takes us right back to where we were a few weeks ago. Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus has said this to the religious leaders twice already. His practice and words are informed and empowered by mercy, by a heart that is compassionate. I absolutely contend that compassion is at the heart of God. Compassion is at the very foundation of all creation. That creation moves in the direction of of compassion and love and forgiveness. And when, like Jesus, our practices, our words are informed and empowered by mercy, inevitably it leads to a less rigid religion. More inclusive, more understanding. And thirdly, faith. This, by the way, is what Jesus said. Some of your um, translations say faithfulness, but he actually said faith. 
This is a faith in who God really is as revealed in the person of Jesus. He is the full and perfect revelation of God the Father. This is the faith that Matthew brings us back to again and again in his gospel. Now, we see it all the way through. Oh, we're going to see it in a couple of weeks in chapter 25 so clearly. But throughout Matthew's gospel, we see that real faith is not about correct doctrine. It is expressed by following the Jesus way. Justice, mercy, and faith are stressed throughout the scriptures. These are the things that matter. How can followers of Jesus stress tithing over care for the poor and a life of faith and following Jesus? We're called to be generous. We're called to be givers, but not to stress tithing over this life of faith and following. To do so is religion rather than a life of abiding in Jesus. The fifth woe, outer purity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside also may become clean. As is so often the case, the early church father, Origen, sees beyond the literal meaning of Jesus' words. Um, and he, he does this again to teach us to look beyond the literal reading of the words of Scripture. We've come back to this theme through this whole series of learning to read three-dimensionally. The, the literal reading, certainly, but the moral reading and the spiritual or water-to-wine reading. So when he looks at these words, Origen says this, We can also say that the very words of the law and the prophets are the cups of spiritual drink for souls. The scribes and Pharisees work diligently at discerning only the external, literal meaning of these prophetic cups and plates and bowls, eager to demonstrate that the vessels themselves are pure and holy. The disciples of Christ hastened to purify and sanctify the interior. The spiritual meaning, the means of knowledge and credible explanations, desire as they do to hear and understand the interior mystical meaning and go beyond the literal sense of the words. Isn't that interesting? Once again, he takes us to an entirely different level of meaning. It does not negate that it means Jesus is talking about the outer appearances and the inner heart, but he, he goes even deeper here, and we see a whole other layer. Jesus criticizes the great tendency to give a lot of attention to outer appearances. Is this because they'd become spiritually dead and insensitive to the inner life, and so now they only had uh, outer life awareness? Or perhaps it's this. Maybe it's because of their awareness of their inner deadness, so their outer appearances become a compensation for how they are feeling on the inside. It's a way of feeling better about themselves to polish the outside of the cup. 
He talks about what's inside as greed and self-indulgence. They seem to be passionately, scrupulously religious, but beneath the surface, social appearances and, and sensual gratification. The outer cup is about external devotion to piety, doing the right thing, looking good. Folks, we've all got to be aware of this danger creeping in at different times. It is so easy. It's easy because of what's in ourselves and our own weakness. It's easy because of our, our church culture. We've got to be aware of this danger. You know, in a parallel passage that's in both Mark and Luke, Jesus says this, When all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. What was inside the cup that looked so good was acquired by plunder, is what Jesus just said. It was acquired through cheating and greed and abuse of power. Remember, we looked, we looked at, uh, at Caiaphas and how, how he, uh, and his whole household actually took land from the poor and the vulnerable. So here's a, an interesting reading by, uh, by Bruner. The cup is the way we obtain, uh, the problem, pardon me, is the way we obtain the cup's contents, the economic and business practices that got us our beautiful things. Clean up your business, wash your dishes, change your politics of selfishness, and you have the house beautiful. Isn't that interesting? He sees a social connotation to this. The sixth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they're full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others. But inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow, Jesus is, is not pulling any punches here at all, is he? Now, I, for a long time, used to wonder at the, the strangeness of, of this metaphor, this comparison that he gave. But recently, however, I discovered that in the month prior to Passover, and of course, we're now just a few days from Passover, all the graves near Jerusalem were painted with a bright white chalk. Why would they do this? It was to prevent anyone, especially the religious leaders, from accidentally coming into contact with a tomb. For this would make them ceremonially uh, unclean. Touching a dead body or grave was the most serious degree of uncleanness in the law. Isn't that amazing? Let me give you one example. There's several. Leviticus 21.11. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother. Now, I think Jesus was alluding 
to a passage in um, Ezekiel 13 where Ezekiel condemned the religious leaders for covering over the true condition of them and Israel. This issue of whitewashing is very important. So Ezekiel 13, starting at verse 10, because they lead my people astray, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when a flimsy wall is built, They cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. Then the uh, wall, when the wall collapses, people will not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? I will tear down the wall you've covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I will pour out my wrath against the wall and against those who covered it with whitewash. I will say to you, the wall is gone, and so are those who whitewashed it, those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the sovereign Lord. Jesus is about to declare the fate that awaits Jerusalem and Israel. This reference to whitewash prepares the way. That they're covering what's broken. They're covering what's corrupt. They're covering the weakness that goes all the way down to the foundation. The final and seventh woe false traditionalism. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? St. Cyril, one of the church fathers, wrote this, But although they agreed to condemn the murders committed by their own forefathers, they were about to become threshing floors for the same kind of evil, indeed to things even worse. They killed the author of life and added to their impieties against him other murders, those of his holy apostles. Instead of the pride of saying, oh, we wouldn't have behaved like that, Jesus is calling them to repentance and recognize their own great propensity to attack others. And we think of them 2,000 years ago. But let me present this to you. Today... We honor Martin Luther King. We honor him with a national holiday. No politician would dare to say anything negative about Dr. King. But I'm old enough that I remember vividly watching the news. I grew up in a home where we watched the news every night. I remember the 60s. I remember the marches. I remember the protests And I remember that the great majority of white Americans and Canadians criticized and attacked. Why does that king kick up so much trouble? And now, 
50 years later, 60 years later almost, we, it's so easy to honor that which is in the past. You know, I think that the hypocrisy that Jesus is attacking in this woe is perhaps even more insidious, more dangerous than the others. It is a criticism from the Son of God upon revering both religious and cultural tradition. Doing this inevitably becomes the dominant force in our worldview. Certainly, we start to embrace this, and our worldview becomes less and less informed by the true meaning of the gospel. A few days ago was the Super Bowl. Terrific game. Both teams played well. But what struck me was before the game, the 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 uh, opening ceremonies, how they were presented with this incredible mixture of patriotism and, and a kind of religious zeal. It was, it was a religious presentation of nationalism at the nation's biggest sporting event. You know, when we hold on to the official national story, like the prophets, like the people that Ezekiel spoke about, we're forced to whitewash the tombs. We need to whitewash the true national story. We whitewash slavery being right into the foundation and fabric and the ongoing incredible damage and pain. We need to whitewash the genocide of Native peoples. This is true in America, in Canada, in Australia, in the Philippines, in, the tai- in Taiwan, everywhere and everywhere and everywhere. We have to whitewash. Now, one of the things that I find upsetting, to be honest with you, and some of you will not agree with me, but, but there is a strong move these days to deny the racial bias and the historical injustice that is carried on to injustice in our own country. This is whitewashing. Jesus is not calling us for collective pride, but collective repentance. And as he says at the end of this, woe, there will be judgment upon nations. We're going to see in a couple of weeks in Matthew 25, he says, and all the nations will be gathered before him for judgment. Well, let's move to the the next section of this chapter, which is really about Israel's future, starting at verse 34. Therefore, I send you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. It's interesting. We see that it's Jesus who Jesus says that he himself is the one who sends prophets and sages and Bible teachers. Scripture says that only God sends messengers to Israel. Jeremiah 7.25, from the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, 
I sent you my servants, the prophets. So again, here, if you look closely, you'll see that Jesus is revealing himself as God. So in this passage, he addresses the long history of Israel attacking and killing the prophets. And he's saying that it is going to culminate in this generation's killing of Jesus and his messengers. You know, Abel was the first one killed in the Bible. Zechariah was the last one killed in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 24. The death of Jesus will be the culmination of this pattern of martyrdom. And then he says, truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Jesus is saying that the reason for the terrible judgment that's going to fall on Jerusalem is twofold. First, It's the leader's false for show religion. And two, that soon they will persecute his messengers. I think this needs to always remain a warning for the church in our day too. That when when God sends people with with a fresh message, you know, historically, I used to study this a lot in church history, the persecuted generation in the next generation become the strongest persecutors. Well, no, that isn't how God moves. He moved this way. It has happened for 2,000 years. So he finishes with a lament over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often I've desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus now turns his attention from the religious leaders to the entire city of Jerusalem which is the center of Israel, the the spiritual and political center. This passage, folks, has always stirred me deeply, going back to my earliest days of reading the scriptures, because it's so filled with pain and compassion. This chapter of woes has confronted the religious leaders in the strongest way yet, but these concluding verses show us of Jesus' motivation. It's not anger or judgment for its own sake. Jesus is using the strongest possible language to give a final warning. And this comes not from anger. This comes from his great care and compassion, not only for Jerusalem and Israel, but even the very religious leadership that he is criticizing. I just want to leave you with a thought here. I shared it with a friend, and we got writing back and forth on it, but I wrote him this. Jesus came to heal sin, not to punish it. I believe sin is a sickness, and he needed to go to the cross to heal it. And this is a great grid, his compassion for understanding what was happening at the cross. Now, notice here also in this passage, he says, how often I desired to gather your children together. Jesus, like the Father, is looking back over Israel's long history of rejecting him. 
Jesus sees as he looks down on Jerusalem what is about to happen. He sees that despite so many warnings, Israel is going to choose the what Walter Wink calls the myth of redemptive violence. It's a myth all the way through history, all the way right up till our day, that, well, if I can just exert my will, I'll get the right result. And, of course, it leads to one side, exerts their will at, at level one, and the other one just comes back, no, at level two, and then the next one at level three. He sees that they are about to embrace the myth of redemptive violence instead of the truth of the Sermon on the Mount that says, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. They have chosen power politics instead of the way of love, the Jesus way. He says, and your house is left to you desolate. Notice he says your house. God's house has now become your house. It's left to you because God has abandoned it. Spiritually desolate, then physically, materially desolate in 70 AD, when the temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed. I'm convinced that as Western Christians, we are presented with the same choice, the Jesus way of peace and nonviolence, or ignore Jesus' teaching and rationalize once again, well, this situation is different. Besides, his teaching isn't very practical in this particular case. Verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, one of the church fathers saw this in terms of what would happen in A.D. 70. The whole future is before the gaze of the Lord, for he foresaw the fall of Jerusalem and the wound which was inflicted upon his people. So he's speaking kind of prophetically. Christostom saw this in terms of his second coming. This is the language of one that loves earnestly. He is poignantly appealing to them in relation to the judgment that is to come. He is now speaking of the future day of his second coming. By quoting Psalm 118, he's sending a message that contains all of the psalm. Remember we looked earlier that in Israel to quote one line of a psalm was to lead the listener to the entire psalm. Well, the message of Psalm 118 is this. God's love endures forever, no matter what. So Jesus' final word to religious Judaism is not the condemnation, but this ends with an announcement that when he returns again, he will be received by an Israel that rejoices to welcome him. So to wrap this up, Jesus has taken the religious leaders and us. I hope I've shown you how applicable this is for us. From the external appearance to the interior reality, from legalism to grace, from focusing on the minute and missing the greater purposes of God. I've separated the seven woes because each of them provides a litmus test for ourselves. 
They're hard, but they're true. And yet, we see that Jesus finishes with compassion, with sorrow, and with the offer of grace. Now, I am excited to announce something to you. Next week, as we look at, (coughs) pardon me, the (coughs) remarkable chapter 24, which talks about what's coming to Jerusalem and, and what will ultimately come, we have the great privilege of having Brian Zahn teach us that chapter. You do not want to miss this. I have been told recently that he may be the greatest teacher uh, on chapter 24 anywhere. So join us then. And join us in another couple of minutes as Tim and I begin to unpack what I've shared with you today. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Okay, we have to stop having fun. <laughs> We're having a good time in the studio today. Um, but we've, got, we've, is... got, we've got seven woes to talk about, so we better get serious here. Uh, just before we jump into some questions, uh, a couple things. One, uh, I just wanted to say last week was great. I was so thankful. If you didn't catch last week's episode, we, we took a step away from Matthew for one week, talked about uh, spiritual direction uh, with a couple of spiritual directors, and yeah. I found it really, really helpful. Uh, I've received some feedback from other listeners saying that was really helpful for them too. So if you didn't catch that, be sure to go back uh, and listen to that bonus episode from last week. So I think it was fantastic. Um, And then a plug for next week. As you mentioned a few minutes ago, we've got Brian Zahn coming in next week. It's going to be absolutely phenomenal. He's going to bring it uh, on Chapter 24, and I'm I'm really excited. I I had someone today, um, Brad Jerzak was on the phone with me. Mm -hmm. Telling me again when I said, "Oh, no, Brian's on this afternoon," he says, yeah. "Oh, he's going to be amazing." Yeah. So, uh, and we'll do the same format. So he's going to Brian's going to do the teaching, yeah. And then you and I are going to sit here and we'll we'll fire some questions his way on that as well. So, looking forward to it. Um, we're going to jump into some questions here on our seven woes of the day. Uh, but just before we do, I just wanted to celebrate. We uh, this time of year, February, uh, is typically when our vocational schools around the globe start firing up again. Uh, they've uh, got a whole new class of 90 students joining the Elevate program uh, that just started last week. And uh, they've added actually a couple of new courses this year. We're teaching uh, screen printing, which is uh, printing like t-shirts and, and things like that. Um, and uh, teaching some art skills as well. So like actual design um, so that people can start designing their own logos and, and all that sort of thing as well. So uh, I'm I'm really excited to see just another batch of 90 students. These are, just so folks know, uh, these students are learning high-tech skills, but it's it's a little shocking to see where they come from. Yeah. I've walked through their neighborhood neighborhoods, yep. I'm going to put in quotes, um, the slums of Kosovo and Katanga. You've heard us talk about them before. Um, these are many of these students have fled uh, war-torn nations such as uh, the DRC and have some really – 
horrific tales to tell in terms of what they left behind uh and even what they came to because of course they fled to kampala and then found themselves just just barely scraping by many of them living on the streets and things like that and now they've got this opportunity for a whole new life ahead of them and it's really really exciting the number of times i've heard stories specifically about um older siblings who are raising children yeah. that are their you know their brothers and sisters yeah. and trying to figure out how to get them into school and stuff like that and they're of course not at all equipped for this uh and now they're getting skills that are going to enable them to go out find work and by the way the number of them that go out and find employment uh either in the traditional marketplace uh, or working as freelancers with some of these skills uh, it's it's a remarkably high percentage yeah, that it is. like immediately find employment. Some of them, because we do work placement and stuff like that, some of them are finding employment before they even graduate. They've already got a job waiting for them. So it's a really, really effective program. Um, last week, uh, I think our, our uh, chat was about our feeding programs, which are also really important. They're rescuing people from very immediate needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, once we get people fed, we've got to get them learning to feed themselves. It's, it's sustainability is yeah. what it's about. Huh? Absolutely. So these programs go a long way towards sustainability. And one of the great things, by the way, is the sustainable approach to these programs themselves so that each year we're able to add more to the program because they are doing things on their side to generate revenue. Uh, so I, on that very same property that is teaching these skills to these students, uh, we have several businesses, including a bank and a car wash and a graphic design company that, by the way, does all of the graphic design and web development for Impact Nations. So graduates of this program, uh, some of them have been hired by that company, and they end up doing our social media, our print media, our video editing, all that stuff. And there may be a whole new one starting with the safari tours. Indeed, yes. They're working on it. In fact, I found out these guys, they're always one step ahead of me. I found out uh, that they've already got three clients booked for the safari tours they just got to get the van so (laughs) so we're working on that too but anyway the profits of those businesses get poured back into these young lives uh equipping training them supporting them in an ongoing way so if you want to learn more about these programs you can head to our website at impactnations.com skills that'll jump you straight to our skills and business page you can read about our philosophy of rescuing people bringing them a process of restoration and then releasing them out to go and uh and be self-sustained themselves and so often they go on to rescue other lives as well. So it's pretty cool. Uh, so impactnations.com slash skills. That's great. Okay. So let's talk about some woes, <laughs> shall we? Um, you did a really good job today of bringing that home in terms of – it would be easy to read that and and project that onto the Pharisees and the religious leaders alone and say, well, that was – you know, Jesus was was scolding them and I don't need to – I don't need to read into this any of my particular context, but I think you did a really good job today of, of applying that to us. Um, can we talk a little bit about tithing? Because I, I think that that's probably a hot-button issue, and I think people would appreciate just further dialogue on that uh, since you touched on it today. Yeah, be um, good. Because what I didn't hear you say was you shouldn't tithe or it's, 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 a, it's not a, a principle that you are – uh, embracing or anything like that. Um, but you also warned about how it can be used to manipulate. It can be used, uh, in the prosperity gospel, uh, to really twist, uh, the nature of the kingdom. 
what what role does tithing play in our lives? Like, what is what is a healthy way of talking about tithing and approaching tithing? Okay. For instance, here's if you were to give a, a you know the one minute spiel as if you're doing announcements at church or something like that, and it's time to for tithing. What's your spiel? How how oh. how should we <laughs> how should we approach tithing? Uh, well, first of all, how often do you hear a one minute spiel? <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, uh, here's what I believe. Yeah. Um, if we look at all of the New Testament, mm-hmm. and I told you there's that one verse, 2323, 23, yep. and then there is uh, Hebrews 7 where the issue isn't tithing. It's about the fact that, that um, you know, Abraham was honoring Melchizedek. That's his point. Yeah. It's nowhere in there. If we look at church history, early church history, there's no mention of tithing. So now as people are starting to get nervous, <laughs> let me say what I believe. Yeah. I think tithing, by which I mean giving about 10%, mm-hmm. I think is a very healthy discipline as a starting point. Yeah. Because it begins to free our hearts mm. from our stuff. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's its – that's its purpose, but you'll notice I said starting point yeah. because where the New Testament clearly takes us is to generosity, mm-hmm. generosity to one another, I might add, taking yeah. care of one another. In the church. In the church. Yeah. I'm, I'm not big on the, you know, bring in the tithe to the storehouse and the church is the storehouse. I, I see no evidence for that in the New Testament, uh, Book of Acts, etc. I'm not against giving to the church, but I am against using a very minor uh, point, minor principle in the in the arc of Scripture yeah. to make a major point. Mm-hmm. I believe that um, as we get freed up, we start to just live more generously, and more generously certainly includes um, giving to needs. It includes sharing our stuff. Yeah. If we get freed up, all of a sudden we find it's somebody doesn't have a car this week, and it's not like, oh, well, I don't like to lend out my car. It's not my stuff. Yeah. And tithing helps get us there. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, it leads us to a generosity that, frankly, gives us a global worldview so that, uh, for me, my giving is uh, – is in lots of directions, mm-hmm. lots of directions. Yeah. And as my heart gets more freed up from my stuff, um, my giving increases. Mm. This has been a 40-year pattern. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I watch with uh, folks as they come from a tithing base. Sometimes I will see – I used to see it as a pastor, and every now and then we'll see it here. Not often, but somebody will give – $231.14, I know that that is tithing, yeah. that they're holding to that 10%. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the focus, we've missed the greater point. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the one of the dangers with tithing is that it stops there. It's You kind of check that box as a spiritual discipline, like, all right, I'm giving. And I hear you saying... It's a starting point. It's but, a starting point yeah. to let the Spirit of God free us up. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk us talk through a little bit about being a prophetic people. Because when you talked about whitewashing mm. and you talked about uh, you, some in our current context, we can whitewash our our history. Yep. Uh, we can whitewash current injustices that are happening. Mm-hmm. The prophetic movement, we've talked about this in this space before, but uh, I think it took a hit. I think it took a very strange turn in the last few years as we yep. saw you know, uh, prophecy being used to manipulate people politically and things like that. But you have talked in the past about what it means to be a prophetic people and a prophetic church. And it seems to me that your description of that actually is an excellent way to avoid whitewashing. Um can you talk a little bit about what, when you talk about being a prophetic people, what does that mean in terms of addressing some of the things that we might be tempted to whitewash? Okay. It doesn't mean uh, making prophetic declarations, yeah. whether it's in church or in social media. Yeah. Um, it means a people that have their eyes fixed like Abraham on the city without foundations mm-hmm. that that on um on the coming of the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god into this realm mm-hmm. not it will one day but it is coming and yeah. ultimately in its final sense it will it is a people therefore with that view so they they have a long term view not a short term view mm-hmm. prophetic people also are gospel people they embrace even when it hurts you know some the psalms say uh, stick to your word even when it hurts yeah. jesus word hurts uh, it cuts across my preferences and it cuts across our cultural preferences, mm-hmm. yeah. both as a uh, sociopolitically and religiously. Yeah. So a prophetic people hold, I think, to the Gospels. Yeah. And, um, and that's what makes us become salt and light in a city on a hill. Not because we say we're salt, we're light, city on a hill. Not because we say, thus saith the Lord, but we live from a whole different base. Yeah. And uh, that's what I believe a prophetic people. A prophetic people are going to learn to live generous lives. A prophetic people are going to learn to move in that rhythm of compassion and forgiveness that I alluded to again today. Uh, A prophetic people are going to live by a very different standard that, that, yes, that's the motivation that, you know, what we've just described, but the fruit of it is... We live our lives differently, yeah. not self-righteously, I might add. Hmm. A prophetic people, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Yeah. That foundational foundational beatitude. A prophetic people walk in, in knowing their need. They walk in meekness yeah. and humility. Uh, they walk with mourning because they understand we're not where we want to be. We're not who we want to be. These are all marks of prophetic people. Yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask a question, as always, you answered it actually moments after I typed it up uh, as you were teaching today, but you, 
You read some passages today, a passage from Ezekiel, from Isaiah, that were some pretty – they had some pretty harsh rebuke to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus' words himself uh, to the Pharisees, (laughs) seven woes, like he had some tough things to say. Yep. Um, And I think that these are some of the things that when when people say, well, God is love, but – and that these are some of the things that they're thinking about when they – whatever follows the but. You know, there's condemnation that comes or there's judgment that's coming. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, John three seventeen or – I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. And then today you talked about like he, he came to heal sin. Uh, and, and then you talked about – earlier than that, you talked about – the need to read the law with the messianic key was the phrase you used. Right. And I think you actually gave us a really beautiful picture of that today where you read these texts that are, uh, you know, these Old Testament prophets giving some pretty pretty difficult words, and yet you brought it back through to the, but, but Christ is here to save us from the consequences of our sin. Yes. He's, he's here to save us from the ultimate... Uh, destruction that is being and predicted. he's not angry. Yeah, it's a he's, it's a motivation of compassion. He, he's sad. Yeah, and compassion. Yeah. Um, is there? What are some marks that we are sitting under teaching or um, whitewashing? Yeah, li- listening to teaching that doesn't read the law through the with the messianic key. Uh, you know, we talked about a few weeks ago, and, and we're going to talk about it lots at the conference, I'm sure. Uh, you know, Brad's book in terms of reading the scriptures the Emmaus way, reading things through the lens of Christ, that messianic key that you talked about. What are some warning signs that we ourselves are not reading with that messianic key, or we're receiving teaching that is not oh, reading through the question. lens of Christ? Well, let me just kind of go off the cuff on this because yeah. we're back to the litmus test, the self-examination. If we are reading or being taught um, the Old Testament, because I think that's what your question's yeah. about, um, in a way that is dualistic, that makes me think of them versus me, mm-hmm. if it makes me think of this is what they're doing wrong rather than me. Mm. I think that's a really strong sign that we're not reading the Old Testament with the Messianic key with Christ. Yeah. Um, if we, uh, if either hopelessness or anger rises up, then we're not. Hmm. Detachment is one of the biggest things. I mean, when the Pharisees. All these interactions with Jesus, so many of us picture Jesus in the white cowboy hat and the Pharisees in the black cowboy hat, sure. right? Yeah. So um, I believe that's the case. Could I be a little bit specific today on whitewashing? Because yeah. I went out on a limb today, yeah. you may have noticed. Yeah. I think I heard the sound of a saw behind me. But <laughs> um, Here's how we've whitewashed some of this. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard any teaching, pulpit teaching, on the abuse of women in the Me Too movement. Mm. I haven't heard any pulpit teaching on the church's complicity with racial injustice over the last 150 years. Um, I'll just stop with that right there. That is whitewashing. 
By staying silent. By staying silent. Yeah. Everything's fine. If I don't talk about it, it ain't there. Right. Right. And nothing to see here, folks. And that to me is a painful uh, example. And I will also add, in my opinion, part of why we have a large exodus of young adults um, is whitewashing. Yeah. They're saying there's no answers. The church isn't giving any answers. And that must be they're not even interested or they don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm being really straight today. But I think we have no option unless we want to get down to having churches of old people yeah. that are, you know, one quarter the size and we don't have a, a gospel impact in our community. Yeah. But I, And I think that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about being a prophetic people because the gospel impact in our community, it's, it may start with – declarations from the pulpit of of this is not just and we need to we need to call it out for what it is yep. but it also must stir us to being gospel people in our communities to being able to to operate uh in a in a search for justice uh, and Lord, being engaged see. in justice yeah. we're back to uh, Jesus teaching always called for activity you yeah. know uh, humility means you got to humble yourself. For mm-hmm. example, yeah. a serving heart means you got to serve. So it does mean that we stand for righteousness on these kinds of issues. Sure. It probably also means that we, for the first time, many of us in our lives, we go find out who's doing something to help refugees, who's doing something to help yeah. single moms, mm-hmm. and then we say, uh, "I'm here too." You know, um, finding the will of God. Shane Claiborne wrote. Uh, probably 16 years ago, he said, to find the will of God, find out who's who's doing something and go join them. Yeah. Hmm. And I would put to you that perhaps one of the reasons why there has been silence from the pulpit is not, the motivation isn't being complicit with injustice, but rather being completely unsure of what to do about it. Uh, if you're going to call people to action, what is the action? Uh, and so we need to start asking ourselves some hard questions of how can I engage in justice? And I think that part of it uh, on those kinds of issues, the Me Too, the social justice, even before there's specific calls to action, just making people aware so that in the coffee room, we don't keep quiet when somebody says something reflecting Racial injustice, or so that's the way giving the poor people are. a language for how to engage in conversation about this stuff in a in a biblical kingdom minded way. Because that's what people care about. They don't care about whether we're charismatic or not, right. <laughs> whether we have hymns or choruses. They care about these issues, yeah. and a prophetic people have an authentic voice yeah. that you know. I, I taught you years ago when. When someone prophesies, listen for the sound of tears in their voice. And so we don't go into the coffee room with, we've got the answers. We go in saying, you're right, this is just hurting and this Mm -hmm. is hard. Yeah. And that's that's, um, being like a co-suffering Christ. That is being willing to engage in suffering, in others' suffering with them. Yeah. Good. All right. Uh, That was really helpful. Thank you. 
This was good. I'm looking forward to next week. I'm also looking forward to May. Uh, if you've been in a cave and are just crawling out, let me tell you, we're doing a conference in May, the beautiful gospel. Uh, it is May 11th to 14th. We are going to have next week's guest, Brian Zond. Uh, we're going to have Bradley Jerzak and we're going to have Cherith Nordling. All of them are keynote speakers and it's going to be fantastic. And as of yesterday, as an added bonus, yeah. each evening we've mm. got Levi the prophet. That's Levi the poet. The poet, but, I mean. Yeah. Ha, I've been talking about prophet. <laughs> Levi the poet. Indeed. Levi McAllister. Yeah. Had a wonderful time with him. Yeah. And uh, he he has a voice for his generation. Mm. Yeah. Um, he probably is a prophet probably, as a poet. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, and we've got several phenomenal uh, folks coming in to do workshops with us. Yep. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to encounter Christ in a fresh, deep way. Uh, and I don't think you'll leave here the same. So uh, you need to be here. Uh, lots and lots of people registering. By the way, uh, cool little thing. I'm sending out an email this week. Uh, we have a deal coming uh, whereby if you register by March 1st, uh, you will be uh, entered to win $100 worth of merchandise at the conference table. So that's going to be uh, all, any of the books by any of the, author, or the authors, the keynote speakers. Uh, it's going to be T-shirts, uh, music, because, of course, we've got uh, Mike Marshall coming to lead worship for us. He's got a brand-new album that's coming out uh, later this month. Uh, so you get to go on a shopping spree on us, basically. We're just going to follow you around with a debit card and buy $100 worth of stuff. We should uh, get... Uh... We should get kazoos with the conference logo. That's perfect. Mike would be really blessed. Yeah, by he'd that. love that. Yeah, yep. and maybe and, some tambourines. And tambourines. Too. Yes, That's perfect. With the logo. Yeah, but the only deal is you have to be in the front row if you've got either the kazoo <laughs> or the tambourine. Oh dear, I'm sorry, Mike. That's a terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> um, please come join us. Uh, if you head to beautifulgospelconference.com, uh, you can learn all about it. You can register today, and like I said, register before March first to get entered to win that $100 worth of merch. Uh, and please come, be with us, hang out. We're going to just have such a wonderful time together as an Impact Nations family. I'm really excited to see what guys. going to do. I am too. Yeah. Uh, and don't forget uh, impactnations.com slash skills to learn more about our vocational programs that are going on. Uh, and otherwise, we will see you next Thursday. We're here every Thursday evening, uh, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And uh, we'd love to have you. We're on the Facebook, we're on the YouTube, or you can subscribe using your favorite audio podcast application, and it will be delivered to your mobile telephone device, and you can listen to it on the way to work. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you again next week. Bye now.